I want to start today off this message portion of our gathering with actually a reflection question. So my hope is that you would receive this question, think about it, pray about it, discern. Then you would turn to those closest to you within your little section, share about it, and then hopefully you'd be brave enough to briefly popcorn your thoughts. I don't need a dissertation. I'm thinking one to two sentences, one to two sentences, okay? So the question is this. Well, first, let me start off uh, affirming our culture. Our church is one of the most authentic spaces I've been to when it comes to church. And God has given us a proximity that I, I, I haven't found elsewhere, that the, the ability just to be with one another and to know each other. And I know there's some new people here that I know, which is great. I can talk you through it. And so you're observing all this, but I'm just affirming what the Lord is doing in and through this place. And um, yeah, I just think it's, we have something very special. I also, as I affirm us, I acknowledge there's a challenge in us. And the challenge is, what does it look like for our church to grow? And that's not just a condemn, that's not a condemning challenge from God, but I think it's a longing we all have. We want to share the common unity, the community that we have. And I think an even more thoughtful question, if you get the e-news, I wrote this out, is what does it look like in our culture to grow? To not sacrifice what God has done and is doing here in terms of authenticity and proximity and even the very um, street view level mission that we do as a church. Um, so what does it look like for our culture? How can we experience more people coming and even coming to faith at Water's Edge? And why I love our culture is that we can have an honest and open conversation about this during church. In major churches, that would be like a major no-no. It's like the higher-ups take care of that thing. But I I'm curious what you guys think and gals. Uh, with our culture that God's created, how can we experience more people coming and coming to faith at our church? And the even more dangerous question is, or what may need to change in order that we'd see the fruit of new life? And we're open to the change, the, the Holy Spirit and the winds of change that God has for us. So take a moment, think about that. I'll give you your introverts your time to process. And if you're new here, I think what you can really offer us is like, what, what draws you to a community? Or conversely, what are you resistant towards when it comes to church? That would be super helpful. In fact, your presence here would be super, super dope in that conversation, okay? But take time to process 30 seconds, then groups, and then we'll popcorn uh, summaries. Cool? All right. All right. How are we doing? I'm back. I'm back. <laughs> okay. And whenever you like create a message, I do have a message today. I do get the whole thing about being top down and all that. But there's a message. There'll be some more sharing. I'm looking forward to what God stirs in it, and I'm trying to surrender to it. But whenever you write a message, you feel the need to raise a meaning with some story, whether personal or in the news or some statistic. I actually think that question raises the need well. I think it's a good question, and we're in one of the most uh, profound. Teachings on Jesus, a parable, a parable of the prodigal son. The question I want to ask, in conjunction with the question I just asked, is where are some of the ways God welcomes those who may be far from home? And when we think of far from home, there are those who are close to home and so far from home. We're just not thinking about like the sex, drugs, and rock and roll in the 20s. We're thinking about a lot of different people. Sometimes our heart can be so close to one another and yet far from God. We're so close to God, and yet far from one another. 
So I think the question really matters is what is the way that God does it so that we can emulate God? And we are continuing our series that we started in the New Year. It's called Homecoming, Celebrating the Lost Being Found. I did it because I like to party and heaven parties when lost find the way home. And in our sin, our separation from God, whatever leads us to that, God is searching for us. He never distances himself. God never distances himself from us. And in our salvation, the Lord celebrates. And the celebration of festivity is so dope, it's so compelling that the earth is wants to join, wants to join that party. We dig it, we long for it, we love these parties because we remember our own time. And it's a mere foretaste of, of, of things to come. In these three parables, the parable of the Shesh, the lost sheep, and the lost coin, and then today is prodigal son, we can miss that Jesus describes God as uh, someone who's gentle and lowly. This lowly shepherd, uh, this peasant woman, we talked about how profound that is in the patriarchal society, that is no problem being compared to a woman. There's paternal qualities of God and paternal qualities of God. And then here we see the humiliated father. And, and we also must know that God describes himself or God's self as easily rejected. But God has no concern about other people's opinions, particularly those who shame or reject God. He just gives his emotional bandwidth to longing for people to come home and loving those who are. That's who God is. And um, there are a lot of scholars that believe that the long scripture that Courtney read today gives us a glimpse of actually the meta-narrative story, the story of the Bible, and God's continuing story. And I would say yes. Uh, there's also other scholars, um, and yeah, there's great books, Tim Keller writes one, Henry Nowen, Best Catholic Priest, uh, Amy Jo Levine, she's a Jewish scholar, great, thank you for that recommendation, got that book on my desk. And then Kenneth Bailey, who will quote a little later, does uh, a lot of stuff in terms of this book. There's like deep books. There's so much written on this, this account. What's going on? Oh, it's not on? Oh, sorry about that. You're like figuring it out. Could you hear me, Hannah? Well, it's not bad, right? All right. So, many, so much written. Um, but interestingly, a lot of people think that a parable or extended metaphor is meant to give one point. But that's not true. Parables actually create a worldview. And we're going to be spending time in parables for the next 10 weeks uh, for this series and then in our Lent series where we're going to be looking at some of the parables Jesus teaches as he goes on his final jaunt to Jerusalem and ultimately to the cross to die for all of us. Um, and so it's just good to know that like common or conventional thinking is like there's just one major point. But no, there's actually a, a cluster of theology in the genius of parables. There's so much that we can learn and discern from meeting a parable, so I'm not going to be able to do it all. As Kenneth Bailey, he writes this, as an extended metaphor, parables are not a delivery system for an idea, but they're rather a house in which the reader and listener is inviting to take up residence. They don't illustrate meaning, they actually create meaning. And in, and in this house, with many windows in which we can look on the world, with many rooms, there's so many ideas. In the parable of the prodigal son, you could just spend months on the parenthood of God. You could talk about the nature of sin, self-righteousness that rejects others. You could talk about what is home, the nature of repentance, joy in community, finding the lost. I've preached on this. In fact, my very first sermon was this parable. And I use this as an opportunity to tell my story, 
both as the younger brother and the older brother. I've used it in uh, sermons past to talk about spiritual maturity, uh, what is home, the good life, and repentance. And today we're going to look at it through the lens of divine hospitality. Asking the question, what are the ways God's welcomed those who may be far from home? Lord, help us. I'm going to reread it. And I'm going to throw some, just a little teaching as I go. I feel like that's the easiest way to do it. I'm going to kind of reserve the elder brother for two weeks from now, and then ultimately we're going to look at the father. So we're going to spend a couple weeks in it. It is that rich. So today we're looking at the younger son. It's not just about the younger son. In fact, arguably it's about the older son just as much, if not more. But we'll read it as we go. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. Probably better to call this the parable of the lost two sons. The younger one said to the father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. The son saying, father, you're dead to me. Even that word property is the Greek word bion, which means life. Literally, the, the father's ripping his life apart to honor the son's request. In a patriarchal culture, this is a moment where you take his son out and beat him in front of everybody. But he sells off his property, his land. In both today and past, so much identity is tied to your land, particularly in the Middle East. I'm not trying to give commentary on what's happening right now, but it's a bit obvious. That national identity and land is, is equated. It's definitely equated. And this is huge themes in the Bible. There's Eden and then banishment and then promise, which leads to a wandering people looking for a promised land. There's warring territorialism. There's kingdom and then division, exile, and waiting for a king who would bring about a kingdom. It's this idea of land and identity is huge in the ancient Middle East as well as scripture. In the Mideastern world, land was tied to identity. But to honor his son's request, because the Lord honors freedom, the father bears the agony. Not long after that, verse 13, the younger son got all together, got together all he had left, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So if you know anything about Jewish culture and being kosher, if you're a pig herder as a Jewish person, that is a renouncement of your spiritual and ethnic identity. Uh, it's considered unclean. And here's what's also true. That son likely did eat the pig pods. That's what Kenneth Bailey attests, because in famine in an agricultural society, in desperate times, in an already oppressed state, you're going to do whatever you can do. People become almost cannibalistic when it's that dire. That's how dire the scriptures are. And these pods are caribs. They're, they're filled with shrubs and maybe a little bit of berries. They literally cannot nourish you. And so there's some correlation here between the lavish life and empty calories. It always leads to a deeper hunger, anything outside the home of the Lord. 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go to my father and say to him, Father, I sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. No appeal for forgiveness. Instead, he's choosing slavery in the ancient culture of uh, custom, rather, of 
bond servitude. And this is my favorite scripture. If I get paclemped, it's okay. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and embraced him and kissed him. And let's just make this uh, Andy Kelly version. While he or she was a long way off, his father saw his son or daughter. His father ran to his daughter. He threw his arms around her and kissed her and embraced her. Nowhere in the Middle East does a patriarch run. He already looks completely like a fool, this father, for dividing up his property. Now this father is like pulling up the hem of his coat in a time where patriarchs don't run and runs to his kid in the middle of the village. And he doesn't care. His concern is untamed affection in a world of pious dignity. I mean, if you can imagine a guy that smothers you like that at night, I guarantee you'll sleep a little better. Like, let this scripture be the one you return to when you're experiencing anxiety at night. The father ran to Alan, threw his arms around Paula, and kissed Lauren. I love that. The son said to him, rehearsed speech, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father's like, with that can speech, just kind of puts it aside. He says, quick to his servants. Love you, kids. <laughs> Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. I feel like I'm Vader right now. It's okay. You guys are, we're all in it. We're all in it together. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and found. So that robe and ring means family. Sandals is dignity. Killing an animal in a world where meat isn't always there is huge. It's almost certainly a public celebration, likely the greatest of fathers all the throne. And so by doing this, he's showing the whole community who shunned the son and shuns the father Hey, this guy is back in my family. And there are people probably standing around like, man, that guy is crazy, that father. You want to go? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're probably like, dude, I can't believe he's doing that. But he, he's, he knows how to party. You want to go? Yeah, I'm in. And then there's others who likely will not go in. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. Ellipses, dot, dot, dot. I'll save that for two weeks from now. I'll say that. There is a lot to be said about the older brother, which was why I want to dedicate a Sunday and a Sunday and a half to it. But with that, let's focus on the younger. With the question that we ask, what are some of the ways we welcome those who are far from home? Well, first off, there's some themes here that I do want to bring up. There's so much that you can say. See, God honors our freedom even at the cost of God's own humiliation and rejection. That freedom can only exist or love, rather, can only exist in the framework of freedom. This is huge to understand the gospel of love, that true love can only exist in the framework of freedom, which means a guy who loves risks that his love won't be received. I love you so much, but you have to choose to receive this love and respond in kind, and I want you to have that freedom because love can only exist in freedom. Same time, this God also knows that home can only be found in God's divine love. That's the rub. That is the rub. We look for love in all places, but home is where it is. So what are the ways God welcomes those who are far from home? This is for us in church. 
what can help um, us as we discern? And I, I don't want to dismiss anything we heard. Uh, I just want to help supplement that because I think there may even be more important things that we've noted, but these aren't like, I don't think they're going to blow our mind, but they're certainly necessary. One is we have to keep our eyes, or at least keep one eye looking out. You know what I mean? Just keep one eye looking out. If I'm looking at Stephanie, I don't know how to do that. I like those people who can do this thing. Anybody can do that where they go the outside? Well, just we have to keep an eye looking out. It says that the father is in the fields. He's attentive to his own, but somehow he's able to see his child while he's a long way off. What does that mean? The father is constantly looking at the horizon, day after day, hoping to see his boy. And when he sees it, he doesn't stop. He runs out. In the church, a lot of times we can be so focused on each other that we can miss those on the outside. And we can do both. I want to be able to share. I think some of the ways that we don't do both is we stay up on the surface, right? And spend so much time talking about our day or the kiddos or wanting a date or something like that. When the, the truth is, God is calling us to speak to the deeper things, the deeper realities. And at the same time, God's calling us to look out for those who are longing for a place to speak to the deeper realities. We have to keep an eye focused on the out. So here comes a question. Sorry, introverts, one more time, just to break up the sermon. Name someone outside of the house of God. And this is not a judgment statement. Uh, just name someone who could use community. Name someone who, who could use a bit more of God's love um, that God may be calling you to run to. Who's somebody in your life? This was a prompt from last week. Now we get an opportunity to share with one another. So, yeah, and I'm going to make you do it because then you have to do it. You know what I mean? You could just sit there and be like, hmm. No, share with each other. It's okay, so take a moment and share with one another. And if you're new here or outside of the house of God, I want, I, and I'm not here to make that statement. Ultimately, the Lord's the one who knows our hearts. Um, name someone who's hugged you well in life and what was something special about that person. Okay. We gotta keep our eye, keep an eye looking out, right, Hammy? Keep an eye looking out. What are some of the ways God welcomes those who may be far from home? The scripture says that God keeps an eye looking out, and then the scripture says that God runs. God runs, and what's beautiful about that moment is the son's rehearsed speech that the father seemingly has no time for. And that leads a bit to the second point, that not only do we keep an eye looking out, but we also embrace each other. So embrace every other that we meet while dismissing, re rebuffing his, her, their shame. Like just, we embrace others while dismissing any shame that they may have. Um, it's interesting about such a loving father. Why would the son want to leave home with such a loving dad? I mean, that's some of the questions we ask with a parable like this. And theology would tell us has something to do with wanting to be in control that's innate in us, if left unchecked, which it typically is. Something about wanting God, wanting to be like God without God. But are there other reasons that the son left home? I'm not entirely sure. And though parables create meaning, there is a temptation to put meaning there that hasn't been stated. I will say this. We can surmise, and if you recall Courtney reading the second portion of it, 
I don't believe that the younger brother had a fairly encouraging older brother from that. I mean, that's what Jesus is making clear because the older brother represents these, the religious institution of, of Jesus' time. And in a patriarchal culture, elder brother holds, holds authority. And there's condemnation coming from the older brother, as, you, as, as we will look at in two weeks from now. So I'm sure there was some judgmentalism and shame that the younger brother received from the older brother that made him want to leave. Could be wrong, but it seems to be uh, representative of Jesus' time. And uh, so he's, he left in shame, and then the son now carries shame from the decisions that he made. Simply losing the wealth, being a pig herder, eating the pods, and then having to go back home as a slave. There's a lot of shame. But there's even a greater shame that comes with the son that he was wrong. Like that, as he entered into the self-salvation project, like if it is to be, it's up to me. I can do this on my own. He came to the reality that it doesn't work out because it doesn't work out. Ultimately, we find out, it's like when we try to do life on our own, we come to this realization that life is not designed that way. So that's, that has its own shame, probably a greater weight. And, and there's people who come to God, I am prone to shame, or we believe there's something wrong about me, that I made a decision. And granted, we can make wrong decisions, but the Lord says none of that. The scripture says there's no condemnation for those in Christ, that we are God's beloved, and he's there to work with the actions that we've made and get us on a path towards hope and healing. That's who God is, and that's the path that he presents. It's like, I hear you, here's the path. Grab a ring, grab a robe. You know whose robe that is? It's likely the Father's robe. That's the best robe. You have my robe so that everybody knows you're mine. You walk with that robe in the shoes that I give you, and we'll walk together. No shame with this. And in the church, as we see one another and we start to unveil the hidden places of our heart, which we're afraid to unveil, because we're... As the scripture says in Genesis, we're afraid to be naked and without shame. It's just like they, were, they felt shame. It's like when we become naked, when we see others, people will say horrible things about themselves. People will say things about God that are not true. God should just wallop me. I always hear that when I'm like, no, God's not going to wallop you. Nowhere does it describe God as a walloper. He's a warrior God who fights for you. He lays down his life for you but he's not a walloper. My wife is so good. It's like on her radar to hear people shame and then say it's not true. Like that's her thing. She's able to see others and be like, "Mm -mm, nope, nope, that's not the Lord speaking. That is the shame train. You need to jump off. And good thing is God will catch you. We need to embrace others and dismiss the shame. It's probably the most helpful thing as we welcome others into their home. And yes, there are actions that we all make where we fall short, but most of us are aware of those actions and we want to provide them with the opportunities that God has for them. God wants hope and healing in your marriage. God wants health and healing for your relationships. He wants, he wants you to trust him as you seek to live in a world where finances seem kind of nuts right now. Yeah, what are some of the ways God welcomes those who may be far from home? Well, we keep an eye out, we embrace others, we dismiss the shame, and then this one is, I don't know if it's really clear, and that's okay, but we deflect all authority except for God's loving dominion. 
I think a lot of people have rub with institutionalism. What that means is it's like, hey, this isn't about us. This isn't about Water's Edge. This is about what God's doing. We, we kind of just always acknowledge the, the living God who's at work. Oh, Andy, a nice sermon. It's like, yeah, thank you. The Lord's good. He loves to use me. That's great. But it's really the Lord. He loves to use you. It's great. It means the Lord is in charge. I mean, if one thing is clear about this child's walk home is that the father does all the heavy lifting. He reinstates him. He frees him from his bondage. He provides. He's the one who throws the party. The son just needs to remain. Needs to remain and receive. Receive the, the, son, the father's love and recognize. This is important to recognize the father's authority and power. To recognize it. It's like, hey, this is his home. This means that anything we do, this is about God, not us. Like, I, I may be an MC right now, but the Lord is a DJ. You know what I'm saying? He's the one who's providing the meal. We just get to bring it in plates and trays. He's the one who cleans up. We just get to move him. He's the one. You know, we, Anthony might start the footloose line. You know what I mean? But the God is the one who's walking down the line and breaking it down. Make sense? It's not about us. It's about the Lord. And what I love about this is the son has some semblance of his inherent dignity. Shame-filled, yes. A dignity, skewed as it was, he, he gets it. You know, there's a time in verse 17 where he came to his senses. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? Here I am starving to death. He knows his father. He still recognizes his father. People in the world know about God. It says in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that God planted eternity in our hearts. All we need to do is direct him to that God. Oh, God is in your life. God is working. God is in love with you, Alan. He loves you, dude. You see, that's, that's, all, that's my greatest message. He died for you. I'm just trusting the God who died for me. After all those empty calories and losing everything, the child remembers in that moment, verse 17, who he is and whose he is. And there's absolute dignity in who you are as the beloved, and there's lasting humility in whose you are. You're not your own. You belong to God. He's the one who's in charge. And this gives us another definition of what sin really is. A lot of times we've talked about sin in the past as our failure to love God and others. That's kind of the active side of it. The motive behind it in sin is like, is that we want to take God's authority as our own. When it truly belongs to God who knows who's greater, better, bigger, stronger than we are. And, and that's this parable, and we'll find out more. It's, it's designed to upset our categories. There's not one person right and wrong person wrong. Everyone in their own way is wrong, and somehow everyone in their own way is loved. And if we receive God's love and make our home in that love, we're able to walk around and just help love others in ways that actually fulfill our soul. That's the gospel, that God dies for us, rises from the dead, gives up the gift of the Holy Spirit, makes us aware of that gift, loves us, says yes to that gift, embraces the God who arms are open on that cross, and then in turn, invite others in. This means that repentance, which feels like a bad word, is, is not about doing something wrong, doing something wrong. Repentance is about turning towards someone and someone's. That's what that word means. Turn to the God who's always facing you, searching for you, holding you, and embrace the embracing God. Amen? Not about God. This is uh, not about, it is about God. This is not about us, it's about God. The next point is just like a preview of the next week. We have to resist the temptation to be the perfect big brother and sister. That's the fourth one. Uh, it's okay to have bigger brothers and sisters in the church. I think it's fine to have leadership, more importantly, shepherds, those who want to guide us. It's monstrous to have people who believe they're perfect. 
or when we believe we're perfect. And so we're going to talk a bit about the older son in these coming weeks, but next week we have a forming worship Sunday that I'm very encouraged about. We have to have a time where we sing, just take a day to sing together in a series like this, because every parable ends with this like celebration. So why aren't we doing that? Let's do it. And then um, we'll talk about the firstborn and all of us and then becoming the parent. But as we sit, speak of younger brothers and sisters, I wanted to take a moment to share some uh, personal news. Well, not really personal news, but um, uh, news for our church. And um, you all know Kim Miller. For most of us know Kim Miller, probably maybe half of us. I know there's a lot of new people here. Kim Miller. Um, she was a part of our community. She found us. She was going to the Temple of Self-Realization, and somehow she came into our community and fell in love with, with our people and had been with us for a year and a half, sweet woman who was honest about her own struggles and different conditions, right? Somehow along the journey, she, she disappeared around Catalina last year when we all, our church, we go to Catalina once year, it's really fun. And uh, she disappeared, right? And we've been searching for her, calling several times, texting her, trying to find her, sending people after her, Paula. Well, I got a phone call last week from Brian Miller, who she was married to for 30 years. And 10 days ago, Wednesday, he went to her home and found her passed away. Yes. Found that she had passed away. And I, I, the question is what happened, right? It's not entirely clear. What I can tell you about the journey from Catalina till 10 days ago is that she hit a real low spot and found herself isolating. I believe she was in contact with neighbors, maybe, maybe her family, but that's what happened. She just hit a real low, like unlike any other low. Um, and she, there was some intervention and whatnot. And then eventually, I don't know how she is, but she passed away. And uh, it is really sad uh, because God uh, was and is alive so much in her life, is alive in her life. Um, I, I don't want to try to make like a happy face over this sad moment, but if you don't know, she was planning to be baptized in Catalina. She was baptized. And the beauty of baptism is just we believe it's not sacramental. We believe it's a response to what God has done. And she was clear. She sat me down after church one day and said, tell me all the questions you go through because I want to make sure I answer them right in front of my daughter, you know. And we went through those questions. Do you believe Jesus is God who lived 2,000 years ago, died on your behalf, rose from the grave, and lives today by the power of the Spirit, sitting at the right hand of the Father? Yes. Have you made this Jesus the Lord and leader of life? Oh, yes, you know I did. You have. You know I remember Kim. And do you commit, as you, do you commit you, yourself to God's church, his people, God's people? She said yes. And I, I, I'm really glad that we had that conversation. That's what I can say. There will be a celebration of life next Saturday. Um, I'll be there facilitating it. If you want to come, it's at... Is there a golf course called the Crossings or something in Carlsbad? I think it's there. At 11, it's at um, 11 a.m. at a golf course in Carlsbad. If you want to go, I'll text you the email or the information. We're kind of figuring out as we go. Obviously, the family's distraught. Um, but what is truth is this woman who is loved by God and did allow Jesus into some hurt places is in a place with the Lord now. I'm confident of that how gracious our God is. Because it's really not about like 
how do we find God? It's like, how do we let ourselves be found by God? How, it's not even about how we know God, but how, how do we let ourselves be known by God? And ultimately, it's not about loving God. It's how do we allow ourselves to be loved God in the deep places of our heart? Yeah, I think that's the place where I'm going to stop and just pray. Yeah, Lord, so um, we do more in the passing of Kim, but we take that scripture, while the child was a long way off, the father saw his daughter. He ran to her, threw his arms around her and embraced her. So, Lord, we, we take hold of this truth in a deeper way today, that this is the gospel, that it all starts with your embrace, your seeing us that none of us are uh, better than one another, none of us are less than one another, but we all need you. And in your love, there's freedom, but in the same vein, we need to give our lives to you, to be surrendered to your love. So God, I pray for that, for, this, for these people, for our people, you, Lord. Uh, I pray that for us, I mean. And I thank you. Um, I just thank you, God, that you took hold of me. I think each of us are thanking you right now. And we just uh, we pray for our hearts as we mourn. We pray for our hearts as we celebrate. We pray this, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. So some next steps. Be baptized to celebrate your homecoming. If you've never been baptized, it's just a response to God's love, representative of Christ dying on the cross and rising from the dead. If you're already baptized, share with someone why you chose to be baptized. And then ultimately invite somebody to church so they can reveal the deep places. We have a great Sunday coming up. There is a connection dinner this week, and uh, I'd love for you all to think about it, and we'll, at Jen's house. She's dope. She, she's uh, someone who is free to be uh, spiritually vulnerable and without shame. So uh, I want to invite Greg and Maddie up for one more song.